Welcome to the occasional Greenlit.com podcast. This is a recording from our micro-budget filmmaking event, in which three very different filmmakers talk about their journeys in bringing their features to the screen on tiny budgets. We're talking to Paul Shamassian, who's filmed the Pyramid Text, stars James Cosmo, and won huge critical acclaim despite the tiny budget. Marcus Marcoux came to prominence with his debut Papadopoulos and Sons, but for his second feature, The Wife and Her House Husband, he took a different approach to both production and distribution. His initiative, cinemaforapound.com, is a brave alternative model, taking a genuinely independent angle on getting the film to audiences. Sean Astor Lewis's debut feature, To Nowhere, is an edgy, queer mini-road movie. Set in a dark London, the film was funded by Greenlit and is now nearing completion. I'm Pete Storey, the founder of Greenlit.com, the funding platform for the creative sector. You can find links to us and all the filmmakers in the show notes to keep up with what we're doing. So please, enjoy... Big vision, small budget. Is that working? We're on. I think everybody, everybody can, We're hear ready. can hear it. All right, okay, so ahead of talking about specific films, let's, everyone loves an origin story, let's ask how the panel ended up in this crazy position of being a filmmaker, because who but a lunatic would want to do that? So let's do the David Copperfield crap, as they say. Um, Paul, what's your well, backstory? Where do you start? Um, I think uh, film, uh, it was always something I was interested in as a, as a child. And then you just kind of just, uh, some people are born knowing what they love to do from a young age and they can't quite quantify it. And so uh, just used to make short films as a youngster um, with my friends. Uh, I had two other friends who were really good filmmakers and um, we just any chance we got we we're making films and then it was kind of later on where it was at the time when uh, uh, I worked my brother was also a filmmaker and uh, he was more sort of uh, the business mind and he said do you know we could actually uh, get paid to make films and I said we could actually do commercials and and, and uh, I, I used to think what how you know it, it, it didn't just get you for me, it was just all about creative and fun. And then uh, he just said, if you give me what the films that you've made and I'll combine it with mine, we could team up rather than us individually going out there and kind of competing with each other. We could just team up and go to production companies. And that's kind of how it started. We went to one production company. They saw uh, they saw our stuff and, and they really liked it. And one guy actually, because a lot of the stuff we did was very much with our own camcorder, at that time, it was like high A and, you know, quite a while back. And one guy in the um, industry saw saw something in it. And he said, what I want you to do is uh, go away and make something that any way I cut it, I can't fault it. You know, so that means sound and, and audio and grade, etc., etc. So that was kind of, that really is what kickstarted everything. And then we did that commercial. Uh, and then that won the Cannes Young Director Award, and then that was, and then we kind of just phenomenal. That's that's quite the that's quite the, the launch. Yeah. And how how about you, Sean? Why did you end up here? Well, I started film quite young, actually. Um, I was about seventeen when I first started, and I didn't really do school, to be honest, at all. Okay. Um, I was quite was quite lost at that moment in my life, and I'd always been interested in some sort of creative expression but nothing had quite stuck and I ended up going to film school after making a short film with a friend just kind of messing around and I think it just instantly grabbed me and just the really immersive world of creating a narrative and all the stages that you have to go through to do that I just fell in love with it and um, from very early on I, I just sort of instantly knew I wanted to be a, a director. And I've basically spent the, you know, the next 14 years trying to make my first feature film. <laughs> and um, I'm nearly there. So. Fantastic, it's, well, it's nearly finished. I think, I think a lot of people in this room will relate to, you know, wanting to tell stories in that way and, and feeling that buzz and, and feeling when, when something comes together. How about you, Marcus? Um, my my history is a, a litany of failure. Uh, <laughs> uh, failed. I went to drama school. Went to Lambda. Failed actor. 
wrote plays. Same, same. Um, and got a zero star review by Mark Shenton in the Sunday Express, which was a first. So a bit of a failed playwright. Um, and, and, and really making films was like, I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I took all my learnings as an actor. I worked 10 years with an improv company, which I loved actually. And when I say failed, I think they were successful artistically, a lot of the things I was yep. doing, but they just weren't commercial. Um, so uh, even as an actor, I was never commercial. I've got some hilarious cast casting stories, which are just very funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, but, I was I was an accidental entrepreneur as well. Right. So I kind of fell into dot com uh, in in the late nineties, and I literally fell into it. And I found myself raising a lot of money for a dot com startup. But I found I was a really good businessman because mm -hmm. uh, I was just very practical, yeah. and I built a successful business. And I realized that if I took my successful sort of ability to run a business with my learnings in writing plays and being an actor and working with an improv company for 10 years, I found that that combination of talents came together quite nicely in making, being an independent filmmaker, yeah. not actually, don't have an agent, I don't work with a producer, I fund my own projects, I don't do anything within the system. I. I'm hated by most agents across London mm -hmm. because I'm constantly putting scripts through their clients' post boxes and I am blacklisted at CAA twice. Holy cow. Okay. Um, and I'm proud of that. So, um, uh, and, and yeah, that's so, but I love, I love it. I love the, I love the end to end. I love the beginning. I love scouting locations. I love working with actors. I love obviously writing because I'm a writer before anything else. And I love self-distribution as well. I love the act of, of engaging audiences directly without having to go via the most god-awful people in the business. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. We at Greenlit, you know, a, a lot of filmmakers we deal with are not terribly entrepreneurial and a little knowledge can can help you very massively. And, and if you've been to one of my talks or one of my lectures or if you've spoken with Grace and, and dealt with her, we try and encourage that kind of thing. So, but it is all about storytelling. And when you're out raising money, and we we're out raising money for Greenlit at the moment, in a very, very similar environment, you're telling a story, you're a narrative, you're putting emotion and excitement into people's minds. So I actually think that captures being a failed actor. I think we, we know about that. Um, I think it's an it's an impeccable grounding. I was the star at my in my year at Lambda. I have to point out, none of the other actors will accept that. But I was getting back to back <laughs> leads at Lambda. Just never translated in the real world. It's a brutal business. There is a very conventional way to to make a film, and and we are all familiar with it. And I'm sure we've all butted up against it, and we may have worked with it, or or it may be you know may have been a stumbling block. But there are a lot of gatekeepers in this industry, whether that is the BFI, whether that is, you know, people's agents and CAA, whether that is, you know, independent financiers or the BBC or, or Film 4. You know, there's there's a fairly limited pool in this country. And that is something that I think we've all found frustrating. So in terms of turning that on its head and, and working on, on the outside of that... Um, so to talk about how micro-budget is tackled, because that, that, that's very much one way, because if you, you know, rather than raising, well, we'll, we'll hear the budgets that, that these people have made their films on, but rather than making a short, what's to stop you making a feature? What's to stop you actually getting something whole and complete and with commercial value and that can demonstrate your, your abilities with, within that longer format? That's a very, very real possibility, and it's, it's a very, very real potential. So... I guess let's, it's a shame we haven't seen the trailers, but that's, that's technology for you. Let's talk about the, the films that, that the panel have made under those constraints. Um, and, and, and to start, start with you, Paul. So you're, you'd made a number of shorts. The first feature was the Pyramid Text, which is on YouTube. We'll, we'll share the link um, on our socials. And let's, let, can you tell us about, first of all, what, what was the headline budget of that? 
20 million? 20,000 pounds, everybody. Yes, 20,000. And how did that come about? Tell tell us uh, the, the story of how you decided to, you know, get that small amount of money and go for it. We were making a film with uh, a writer, a good friend of mine, Jeff Thompson, and I knew uh, the, the lead in that had just done something with James Cosmo. And we, when he mentioned he was working with James Cosmo, um, I said, I've always wanted to work with him since um, I saw him in Braveheart. And w- would he be interested in being in this, in this film? And he said, I'll, I'll ask him. And so uh, he managed to arrange a meeting and uh, uh, we met James and uh, we talked we talked a little about the film, but we talked about other things, boxing and et cetera, et cetera. So we just became, uh, it, we, we really connected. And he just said, yeah, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to be, uh, I'd love to do the film if, you know, let me know what happens with it. So when we were trying to raise finance for that, it didn't quite happen, but the writer became really good friends with uh, James Cosmo. Right. And James said to him, I'm really interested in doing a one man, a one man uh, play, a tour, you know, he, and so uh, they were talking about possibly Jeff writing something just for James Cosmo. Um, he went away, he wrote something incredibly powerful. And uh, Absolutely. James, he, he, he was hesitant at first because it's quite a personal piece. Uh, it was kind of an amalgamation between James's stories and Jeff's. And then he approached us and said, would you consider doing this as a, as a film? And we said, uh, we we read it and we just said yeah that's a really good challenge like one location just the guy talking um and it had a real it was very it was really powerful and the thought of working with james and that's kind of how it happened and then uh we knew someone that um is is a is a patron of of jeff and our work and he said i'll i'll give you 20 20 000 for this we did the budget and it actually came to uh, a producer said to us i've I've stripped everything to the bare bone, and this is 70K. And we said, we've only got 20. So um, I don't know how we did it for 20K. I mean, it was a real challenge. But what we started doing, we started getting creative um, because James loved the, 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 the piece. So we thought, okay, he's, he's in. That's we, we've got him. Uh, we got the location for very little. We thought we will um, shoot it in uh, Bethnal Green Boxing, Boxing mm-hmm. Club. And then we set up the lights in such a way that we didn't have to keep de-rigging. Uh, we did longer takes. Um, so it was essentially, it was a monologue with a, with a very powerful ending. So we thought we can, we can achieve this. We got there extra early. I mean, James was great uh, because he said, what time do you need to start? We said, well, we have to be out of here by about two or three. So we need to start at six. So he showed up at six o'clock in the morning. We had five days, five, that, yeah, the fifth day was a half day, but some, somehow it worked. Extraordinary, yeah. 20, 20 pages a day. Yes. Pretty much. Yes, yeah, yeah. phenomenal. The so the, the the structure of it is, it's effective, effectively a monologue. It's it's a one yeah. man. The, the only speaking part is is James, although his son features in it as well. James, yes. his actual son, um, in in a very powerful relationship there. I, I the, the the you know the twist at the end, which I won't elaborate on, but that that did take me. And it's it's I can see why he was attracted to a piece as intense yeah. and as tightly written as that. Yeah, yeah, he was really taken. Yeah, initially, um, initially he he said he couldn't do it, and this, this is not a story that we've really shared that much. Um, but I'll 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 share it. Something is quite special. It, so so he he said I can't I can't do this. It's too personal. And then so that kind of was on the back burner. And then we were driving. I was driving one day, and uh, I got a call from Jeff, and he said, "Where are you?" And I said, "I'm I'm driving." He said, "You might want to pull over." So I pulled over, and he just said, "I've got some good news and some bad news." Said, okay, what's the good news? Said, um, we've got the money, we've we've raised twenty k. I said, okay, uh, what's what's the what, what, what's the bad news? And he said, uh, James is not well. He's he's. I mean, without going into too much detail, he's not going to be around. He's just called saying that he has to do this now. We thought, man, what? This is this is so weird. It's like we wanted to work with this actor now. Yeah, and then we just thought, well, if he's going through this, then you know, why am I nervous? <laughs> you know, let's let, let let's let's just let's just do it. You know, uh, and so he came in with with that. And so we just kind of you know that kind of was a real driving force. Um, and then so we made sure that we we did it at all costs. I think that was really the priority. And so when we were going in, people were 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 
really gracious to help us. We, we wanted to shoot the film on black and white. So we sourced the only red camera that was dedicated black and white that no one used. So they just said, you can have it for free because no one's using it. It's like it's been sitting on Amazing. the shelf for, for a year. They did say to us, if you shoot on this, you can never go to color. You know, usually you shoot in color and then you go to black and white. Yeah. And we just said, you know, we did tests and we said, we're going to, you know, if you're going to make a commitment, make a commitment. We'll do it black and white. We've got the lenses and everything. So it all worked out. And, and just as a, to cap the story, when we, we went to Edinburgh, um, and he, he won Best Actor at the Edinburgh Film Festival. He pulled us aside and um, he said, uh, I'm, I'm okay. Amazing. Which is amazing. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the themes of the film are very, very much about masculinity and mortality. Um, so I, I, I didn't know that backstory before I watched it. And that gives it an incredible power, knowing that as well. Yes. Uh, even if you didn't know that, but now you see it and you see how authentic that, that performance was. Incredible. Um, Sean, to nowhere. Let's let's hear the backstory of, of that one again, which which I know a little about, but you'll be able to fill in the details. How did it get? To, how did it get to production? And how? Why did you decide to do it that way? Just to give a quick um, overview of the story. So it's a queer, dark coming of age drama, set in one day. Um, it's about two self-destructive teenage friends who um, kind of embark on this alcohol-fueled trip around a lonely corner of London. And as they spiral out of control, they're forced to confront love and trauma that they've both buried before they lose each other forever. So it's, as you can probably tell, it's quite a small scale concept. Um, I mean, I suppose, a huge part of the journey for me was actually connected with learning how to write, I think. So it did actually start as a multi-plot script because I think I wanted to break up a feature into various kind of bite-sized different stories and then they ended up being interwoven. And I think when we were raising the, the budget, it got to the point where you know, there was one story that people wanted to, that people were really interested in. And then I thought, well, I'm sure I can, like I have various snippets of this story, I'm sure I can expand it into a feature. And then it happened really easily because they were definitely the characters that I was most invested in. Um, so, I mean, after that, the first stage was really finding a producer to work with. And, and then, you know, gradually, building up different crowdfunding campaigns and gathering a crew and, you know, creating script breakdowns. And it, it was a bit of a snowball effect because I feel like, you know, we got a really great casting director attached to the project, for example. And once she was on, then more people were interested and the more sort of heads of department who had a bit more experience joined. And it was this quite accumulative effect. Um, and I definitely felt supported by by a team because not only did I have a script, but I also had, you know, really good DOP, really good Fantastic. cast, that kind of thing. Fantastic. Um, and and we we'll touch upon cast, but the, the casting is impeccable, I thought. Um, so to, you know, to have a, a casting director who, who got, you know, I think she kind of got it. She, she got the project and, and understood yeah. it. And it's interesting. I hadn't known that it was previously, you know, you'd gone for kind of multi-strand because I do like films like that. But I think the intensity of To Nowhere as, as it is um, it actually benefits from from that closeness and, and that tightening. And the budget as well. And well, and the budget, of course, I yes. done the original script on the budget we ended up. I mean, we did adapt the script to the budget. That's another part of it, yeah. Spill the beans, Sean. How much? Just under 30K in total. And you're, you're just finishing up post now, I believe. Yeah, so we did actually finish the film in 2020. Um, did a year of festivals and then decided to do a minor recut, which has now unfortunately taken almost a year. Um, <laughs> so we're just finishing the last bits of the online edit. So it should literally be finished in the next month or so. Fantastic. Very, very much looking forward to that. Marcus, do you, do you want to touch on Wife in a House Husband was your second feature? Perhaps you just want to touch very briefly on well, Papadopoulos. Well, Papadopoulos and Sons was uh, my debut feature, which I, I did completely, I didn't know what I was doing, really, in terms of, in terms of, 
to the industry that I thought I was entering. I knew, I knew how to make a good film and I was really lucky to have, uh, I basically used the, the business's savings of about 10 years and I convinced my brother to go make a feature film. And you, in my head, it was a kind of 90s indie model where you make the film, you, you take it to Sundance and then someone competes for your purchase yep. in the hallway. Do you know what I mean? And, and of course that model of selling films died. Um, I, I was really lucky to have met a fabulous producer when I was, you know, get, get, getting into this, who convinced me that this was the way to go. But I, I don't want to take up too much time. In sure. short, I made a really good film. Nobody wanted it. No one wanted this film. It was weird. It had Stephen Delane in it, who gives an incredible performance. Yeah. It is slick. It is funny. Yeah. Anyway, I, and to cut a long story short, I self-distributed it. I stuck it in 12 Cineworld screens. I, I mean, it's very well documented. If you Google it, it's, there's some crazy stories. You know, we ended up, I ended up doing a screening at the European Union, like, at the same time, on the floor below, the Greek government was negotiating its bailout. And on the, <laughs> um, we were on the floor above screening a film about Greeks losing money in a financial crisis, <laughs> trying to get a bailout. It was weird synchronicity like that was happening. And I thought, oh my God, this film's got its own energy. It needs to do its own thing. And I, all I wanted was to sell it. I wanted an agent. I wanted Fox Searchlight to pick up my picture, but I ended up being going down this crazy road and I ended up self-distributing it. Um, we ended up with the second highest screen average of any film in, in its opening weekend. I had a PA budget of just 40 grand. I just targeted Greeks. There was a misunderstanding with the cinema book. I said, what do I need for a second week? And he said, you need 500. And I thought, okay, I'm in 12 Cine World screens and I've got to get 500 people in each Cine World screen to get a second week. And then we blew the doors off the, the thing. Everyone was going, what is, who is this guy? Second Brilliant. high screen average. And I said, Martin, have I got, I did, I did 500. He said, no, I meant 500 pounds. <laughs> and I was going on the assumption of 500 people. <laughs> and I worked like an idiot. I mean, I called, called Greek Orthodox priests. They were announcing the, the film in their Sunday service before the opening weekend. The, the, the guy on Twitter in Cardiff was messaging me going, the Cardiff cinema is full of Greeks and the Greek priest, our Greek priest is there blessing the opening credits of your movie with a massive extra large popcorn in his hand. And years later, I was sitting next to a really well-known Spanish distributor and I told him this story. It was at a dinner table and he said i heard that story that's crazy that's so fantastic. all of that kind of stuff and then i ended up selling it to netflix the bbc it did a hundred screen release in germany it did middle east and it did all of that and i had the time of my life doing that i mean i was Brilliant. flyering people coming out of coco camden and they were you know listening to greek acts and they were saying i think i heard you on a greek london greek radio ad and i went yeah that's me all of that madness right now with the wife and her house husband it's a, it's a, and I commend both these filmmakers for making their films on these budgets. That actually is the spirit of independent filmmaking, what these two brilliant people have done, which is to create something from such a low budget and to create story that's compelling and authentic. And I commend both these filmmakers. On, and, I, and I wish you all the same kind of energy and success. Um, with the wife and her house husband, I'll, I'll just cut to it. You know, I had I had amassed a little pot of money which was going to anchor my second feature film, which was going to be a bigger 1.5 million budget picture. Mm -hmm. And I had some wonderful names attached to that, really lovely household names. And pandemic came and thing collapsed. And I'd been want, I I'd wanted us to do a 20, 25K budget improvised feature. Because right. I come from an improvised theatre background. And I and effectively was going to be shooting to a husband and wife breaking up over three days. Got it. And I was just going to shoot the hell out of two actors over over London. And it was 25. And we're going to shoot on two cameras, two booms. And we were just going to a wide and single and just get everything we needed and then just throw it in the edit and I'd get a film out of it. And then I thought, OK, let me then the. The pandemic, pandemic came, I thought, why don't I just actually write that story? So effectively, it's about a husband and wife who are in divorcing and a, a letter pops up and the letter says in the event, they, they, no, none of them, neither of them remember writing this letter. 
Like, but it says, in the event of a breakup, we need to do these things. And these were the kind of things I was planning when I was going to do an improvised piece. Like, go for a coffee, where we first met, blah, 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 etc. Now, in terms of how this benefits you in this room, what I learned in terms of, it's a bigger budget than these, these guys. It was, it was, the budget was 280. Of that, 240 I spent. 20 was COVID and 20 I kept back for distribution because I knew I was going to need something for distribution. Now, the, it was an 11 day shoot. We lost two days to COVID. So we ended up being nine days, had to recut my schedule. But the, the key learnings for me and where this might benefit your audience is I shot one lens, never changed it. I shot off the shoulder and handheld. I found a DOP that I'd worked with before. He'd made a short film with me called Two Strangers Who Meet Five Times, which is doing really well on YouTube. We, we talked a lot about this style of filmmaking where the camera operator, the DOP, the cinematographer, is an actor in the piece. And what that means, actually, as a... As a so effectively, when you're shooting on a, on a wide lens, handheld and off the shoulder, you're effectively, the camera operator is really getting really into the actor's face. So what I did is I rehearsed, it's, because it's really two actors, it's a conversation, it's nine or so scenes, and effectively I rehearsed them like theater. I had a production design that effectively allowed the camera to go anywhere. I had a lighting state that was consistent. This, this was location or you're on a stage? Uh, locations, wherever we were. So if we're outside, fine, the lighting state is consistent. But in terms of production design, I, I needed the camera to be anywhere, right? So it had to be quite loose, right? And that allowed me to shoot on day one, 10 pages by lunchtime. And I could shoot 10 pages with uh, no, no, not a single, not an actor dropping a single line. So in other words, you're, I could shoot, so I rehearsed it like theater, it was performed like theater, and really the DOP is now an actor in the story, feeling moments going in, actors knowing the camera's really close on their face, then having to just work with the camera. And because they knew they were off book, so brilliant, these two actors, it meant we could shoot 10 pages seven or eight times. And it meant that I could then take that back into the edit. The other thing I did was silent takes. So in other words, I would do the whole scene again. And I nicked this from um, David O. Russell. He does silent takes on a steady cam. I thought if I'm shooting handheld and off the shoulder, I can do, I can do the same thing. Effectively, what he does is he does the whole scene with no dialogue. And he's standing next to the camera, screaming at the actors, telling them what emotions they're feeling. I thought, well, I'll do exactly the same thing. And it meant that when we went into the edit, I had basically all this silent tape material that I could just cut to for these crazy long, insane pauses. And as we know as filmmakers, right? As you know as filmmakers, that is gold. Because often in the edit, I was finding, I was using like the bits after I'd called cut. I'd be like, cut, I'm like, bloody hell, that bit's even, that's better than what I've got before cut. So how can I extend that? So. So there were lots of things I did that would, that would help a lot of the filmmakers in this room, which was things like that, one lens, shooting off the shoulder, handheld, rehearse it like theater, shoot it quickly, which I was a gamble, was like, I wrote a 60 page script, knowing, hoping that it would, it would basically prove like a loaf right. to about 80 to 90 minutes, right? And every day I was checking with my script supervisor, what have we got, what have we got, what have we got? And she was saying, yes, you're, 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 you're right. It's 20% more than I originally anticipated because that was the only way I could do a, a feature film in that time. If I'd written a 90 page script and I'd got into an edit and find I had to cut, I, wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have the luxury to do that. So we shot. 60 pages in nine days and ended up with an 87, 88 minute movie. So it, so it proved. It, but that was a gamble. That was the yeah. thing that I was most worried about on set. I was like, if I've got this wrong, I could end up with a 50 minute feature. So that was the gamble. Because often you go, you know, do, traditionally in, in the, when you go do the talks, when you go to the sort of the typical film school talks, they're always saying a page a minute. But I always found that 
that if you're going with the silences and the nuances and the, the, the things that are not said in, in scenes, which often makes other films that we love more interesting, then sometimes you can have m more than a page a minute. Anyway, that was me. Interesting. And, and I've never come across that technique before about doing a silent take. The silent take was amazing. So effectively what you're getting is reaction well, all the time. But what you need to do is you need to know your script inside out to be able to do that. And what it does, it buys you the respect of everyone in the room because they see that the, the, the writer-director really, really understands the beats of the story. And it does, it does two things. Firstly, it gets you that material in the can, as it were. But secondly, it just, it just makes people love you and go, Jesus, this is really, I've never seen anything. So all the actors love you, all the crew love you because you're doing something unique and different and they've never seen it before. And it's actually a very practical thing as well as a kind of selling yourself to the, you, you yeah. know, as filmmakers, you're constantly selling yourself to the actors, to the crew, to everyone involved, um, because they want to be able to follow you into treacherous uh, waters. You want your actors to just spill their guts and you want your crew to be doing you favors, right, behind your back, rather than going, I, f I hate this guy. I really hate this guy and I'm not going to give him any free anything. Yeah. I mean, this this is wholly true. I mean, I, was anybody here at last night's event in this very same room? I think, uh, there we go. So it was, it, was, it was about casting and exactly this. And the point is that, you know, actors in the cast that you may feel are inaccessible, actually they want to do good work. And, and if they want to do something that they respond to the text or your method of working, those actors are much more accessible than, than you might think. Um, it's interesting. So there's a practical takeaway. Um, Marcus was talking about there about, you know, the sort of longer takes, but the theatrical aspect of rehearsal and, and getting people off book and, and, you know, able to move I fluidly think it, with that. It, what amazes me is the industry's reluctance to do rehearsal because with rehearsal, you're literally, you can, I don't want to go beyond three takes. Fourth take is a luxury. If you've rehearsed the piece, You've got it on the second, often. Third is like, you know, may as well. And fourth is, uh, we've, we've done it so well, let's just yeah. give us that. And, and I know that's, a, for some people, that's just like the, the crazy an idea. But if you've done the rehearsal, it's, it's a no-brainer. People, and the other thing I did, as I took the actors to the locations before they went on set, I actually put that in their rehearsal period. I said, we're going to visit all these scenes the, where you're going to play the part and get them used to where mm -hmm. the location was. And we would actually run the, the scenes in location without crew, without camera, without anyone, just me and the actors. So by the time they end up on the location with all the lights and craziness, they were grounded because they go, I've done this before. I've done it in this in a safer kind of space so I know what I'm going to do and that is so efficient every pound you spend on rehearsal and I don't know why the studios don't think like this is money saved when you're shooting it is it is I couldn't agree more Sean what was what was your approach to rehearsing and the number of pages you were getting per day and moving you know I'm, I'm kind of interested in you know the same what Marcus was just talking about, how, how you tackled that on, on a very different film that was very dynamic in a lot of locations and, and you know, shorter scenes. I think, I think in some, there were definitely some similarities. Um, so, I mean, our shoot was 14 days. Um, so, I mean, that was difficult, so I can't believe <laughs> how short yours was. But, <clears throat> I mean, so I didn't get that much rehearsal time, to be honest. So it was mostly, you know, the two leads and then a handful of supporting cast members. Um, I think I literally had about three days of rehearsals. The first one was just the, you know, the main kind of three characters and then expanding it slightly. Um, but it wasn't necessarily kind of going through the beats of the script. It was more about, because it was, it's a very character driven drama. And I was very intent on creating extremely like three-dimensional characters who really feel like they could exist. Um, and I was lucky to work with a really hard-working and talented cast. So by the time we were on set, they, they definitely had some level of freedom to improvise. 
um, you know, often it was more to do with physicality than actual dialogue. Okay. But they both just, you know, it, for example, someone would be necking a beer can and then just they would, it wouldn't be a script, but they'd throw it on the floor and the other person would pick it up. You know, it's a small gesture, but I think it's quite telling of the dynamic between them and the sort of people they are. And they would add all these amazing little details like that. Um, and I felt like it was the, the preparation of the characterization that really brought that to life. And then in terms of shooting, uh, me and my DOP were really well prepared. I mean, we, he didn't, he came on board about a month before the shoot and we just sat down together. We met up with any free time that we could and just went through every single line of the script and we ba basically discussed what it meant. Um, and then obviously eventually put together a shot list. And, but when we got on set, we, we didn't really stick to the shot list um, exactly. And obviously it's great to have that foundation, but when we were, I mean, for me, some of the best moments of making this film were being on set with the DOP and these great actors and just doing like a 15 minute take, really intense. He was really dynamic, really spontaneous. He loved the challenge. Great. So did the actors and they get into this incredible flow, which is probably a bit more like theater, where they're just so deep into the characters and the scene that the performances, you know, came out really nicely. And yeah, I mean, like you said, definitely. I, I, I would, I, I threw away the shot list on Papadopoulos and Sons. Yeah. I threw it away and I went, actually, this isn't, this is restricting me. Yeah. And I never went near a shot list for the wife and her house husband. And actually, if you read interviews with a lot of more seasoned directors, they say by their fourth, fifth, sixth feature, they're throwing away their shot list because they've got more confidence. Obviously, if you're making, you know, one of the superhero franchises, you're going to need a shot list. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. what a short list does is it helps you think about it. Yeah. You know, it helps you really assess what's the meaning of the scene, what's the feel of it. And then when you're on set, it just comes to life in its own organic way. So, you so, so this, is, this is a very interesting aspect to me because those of you who don't necessarily know me, but my background was in lighting as a gaffer. Uh, so I would very often have to deal the, with the consequences of this fluidity and it was it, we like shortlists because we knew what was going to go where and we didn't have to run around like like lunatics um but without that uh i mean you know you you talked about effectively having static lighting rig you used a lot of available light and and was very fluid and dynamic and again you paul had, had a, a static lighting rig over, over the, the, the ceiling of the gym over the over the ring and those are very liberating so so by deliberately you know having those restrictions and not having to worry about the mechanics of a great deal of technical work um i think that can actually be quite quite liberating paul what, what, what was your approach to to rehearsal let's say very very serious actually piece um he he didn't want to rehearse which was okay with us um he just said i'll 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 just show up on the day and, and, and do it, which was which was actually quite exciting for, mm. for us because we thought um, he's obviously going to release it on 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 the day. Um, so it's interesting because every actor has a different approach, and um, we've worked with we've worked with varied actors. And I think one thing in common is talking with the actor, sitting down and talking about the the the, the part and the, the things they want to do and. Uh, so yeah, with James, he just said, "I'll I'll um I'll do a, a rough read through, and we'll kind of go through the beats." And and it it was very very uh, it was very casual, but he saved it all for the performance. Was was it fairly tightly scripted? I mean, I I loved the I was say dialogue and the monologue, um, but the words you know seemed to have a beautiful rhythm to them. Yes. How, how much of that do you feel was in the writing, and how much was in in James's performance? It it was in the writing. Um, but the writer sat down with James and he's got yeah. an uncanny ability to write for an actor and he hears their voice. Cause he, um, before he had done, he did, um, he did a short film called Bouncer and Ray Winstone picked it up and it really suited him. And he actually wrote it with someone like Ray in mind. So right. when an actor reads that and they kind of go, hang on a second, I'm, this feels really familiar. So it's got that, that kind of rhythm and the tempo. And so it, it, that's why it fits so well. Amazing. So this is quite interesting. In, uh, I, th I think we're starting to see some, see some conclusions here about how 
this low budget can be can be quite liberating um, if you if you do your prep and if, if you come to it with with the right uh, mentality. Okay, um, what about restrictions? Were there were there things you wanted to do that you felt would really have, have been transformative and you couldn't do? Yeah, something that that, that you said. You know, you've got um, a shot list and you've got. Um, how you want to shoot something and then you're looking at the clock and suddenly things aren't going that well so you've quickly got to change stuff and and work around it and um uh so in one side um we for for the pyramid text and and for the other feature we did we did we did prepare so we would actually go on set and say to the our dop camera's going to be there actor's going to be there we do this they know where to put the track and basically we we're moving as fast as you guys can set up because um, I'm also an editor, so I'm, I've got that kind of uh, um, afterthought. And, and it has helped with the actors as well. You know, we, we say to them, uh, we're going to be on a tight lens, we're going to be on a wide lens, etc. Uh, but that can be, be limiting. But I've also found if you, if you know that, then you're not wasting time on set a bit stumbling. You know, you kind of can, can work around things if you're prepared. And so there was a lot of times with... Uh, with um, when we would prepare something and we go, well, we don't have the time to do the other shot. Can we just do it there? Or can we just, you know, so it, 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 it's, we prepared, but then I think with everything, you can't have your, you know, you've got a wish list and then you have to just stick yeah, to what's you, practical. Yeah. There's probably not the necessity, you, you know, you, you probably hope for coverage far in excess of, of what is actually needed to, to, you know, keep the story lean and, and taut. Yes. How about you, Sean? Was, was there anything you dipped out on that you would like to have shot? Um, well, yeah, I was thinking about the main kind of sacrifice that we had to make. And has anyone seen that triangle thing about low budget filmmaking? Mm. You can't have all three of these. It can't be cheap, it can't be high quality, and it, you can't do it quickly. Yep. So I've been working with Feature for seven and a half years. Wow. So that's probably the main sacrifice that I made. Um, yeah, to put it simply. But that's okay. But I mean, you, you didn't, yeah. you know, you didn't feel on the shoot. There weren't, you know, shots that you were desperate for that you had to drop for practical purposes. I mean, to be honest, maybe there were, let's say, like two takes that I would have liked to get another one on. Yep. Two shots, sorry, that I would have liked to do another take. And <clears throat> it's probably more post-production, actually. Right. Because on set, I think people are quite used to working very quickly in low-budget situations. With a you know with a team, but post production is a bit more clunky. The workflow can get quite difficult, um, and then you get all these sort of technical problems coming up, and you don't quite have the budget to fix them. And right, yeah. So I mean, I think like with any low budget, micro budget film, sound post production has been quite painful. Got so, it. So you know, if we had had the chance to like have a smoother workflow of that, obviously that would have been. Um, that would have been nice. Did, did you, I mean, was perhaps part of that, did you capture the sound okay on location? Because you had a much less, I think, much less controlled environment than, than these two. I mean, yeah, a lot of it, like, a lot of it was shot kind of on location outside by a road or by a river or on a street, you know. Um, so there was a lot of kind of natural sound, ambient sound coming in. And that, I think, unless you... I think, yeah, that's one big thing I've learned going mm -hmm. forward. And I know it's an absolute cliche for, you know, like micro budget debut films, but just taking that bit extra time to make sure that you have the, the sound that you really need yeah. on set. I mean, we had sound nightmares, don't get me wrong, because we were shooting in the middle of London, there was building works. What I did is I got my sound recorders to speak to my dubbing mixer a month before we shot. And I said to them up front, here are the tricky locations with building works, this, that, and the other. So he radio mic'd everything and boomed. But they did this. She's a, she was a genius, the stubbing mixer. She was a genius. She was able to isolate certain frequencies. And because mm -hmm. we radio mic'd and boomed, they were doing this, this quite advanced mix of, of isolating frequencies. Where, they, where you could have the depth of boom and the quality of the radio mic. So we had two booms and radio mics. And I honestly thought we will be, 
we'll be ADRing one of these scenes because mm. honestly, it was just like half of London was building. It was, and we tried to shut one of these building sites down next to us by begging. Right. And they said it will literally, even if we stop for an hour, it will cost us three million quid. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't happening. And we're like, please just stop for, for 20 minutes. And I thought we are ADRing this. We didn't do a single line of ADR. And she, and I think one of the conversations that you would have to have as low budget indie filmmakers is get your dubbing mixer, your sound recordist, and the post production house, and the and the and the recordist all talking beforehand, and you give them a heads up. In these scenes, there's going to be trouble. What do we do? And sometimes what we would do is as well, is like if there was like, and I was having kittens on set going, oh God, we're gonna have to ADR this, we're gonna have to ADR this. I'd see the sound recordist quickly grab the two actors and they would just do the lines like on set ADR because they were still fresh in their head and they would do this, they would just run the whole scene uh, as if they were ADRing. And then for that would go to the editor as well. So you've got you're basically covering your backside at every. So so that's quite that's quite an interesting approach on set ADR. So like, set, you know I get get the on, mics in close. I, and I did that. Not on, worry about I did that on Papadopoulos and Sons. I had a really great sound recordist, and he said he would go. I'd go cut Simon Colmeyer. He's an absolute god. I love this sound recordist, a Northern Irish guy, and he'd say to me, "Stop, Marcus. We we haven't got these lines." because there might be a, you know, a, like a chair dragging across one line. And he would go as a sound recordist, great sound recordist, he would isolate every line we didn't get clearly. He would then say, keep the actors, right? Stop, keep the actors, everyone are off. Guys, we just need to get these lines. And we just do them ADR on set. ADR on set, but you need a sound recordist that's really clued in not one that just sits there in the corner with his cans on going, yeah. got it. You need someone with a script going around going, okay, we've got it here. We've got it here. We actually, these three lines we don't have. Let's do onset ADR quick. That will save you a fortune in post-production. I think that's an absolutely brilliant tip. I mean, you've described quite a sophisticated mix and that sounds quite spendy. Whereas perhaps that can't necessarily wasn't be replicated. wasn't that very expensive. I just had a really good sound recordist who, I, and who basically insisted we had two booms and i then went to the line producer i went let's get them two booms let's have the two booms and the, so the combination of two booms radio mic a, a dubbing mixer that could isolate frequencies in some kind of genius way and mix a boom with a radio mic to create that frequency package right that isolated the diggers out of the way i mean you know you're in the hands of technical sort of geniuses ultimately that's that's and you've got to find these people and trust them and let and free them to find solutions they will always find a solution if you give them the opportunity fantastic and and very good very good advice so i think being you know as prepared as you can and, and just trying to anticipate those problems because that doesn't cost anything as much anticipation as you like so look i mean it's, it's kind of we're going on. is everybody on the panel we can keep talking yeah all right fantastic all right okay um so We've got, you know, we, we've got these films in the can and, and we're at kind of, you know, kind of different stages. Um, Paul, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the journey of the Pyramid Texts, you know, once once you'd completed. What happened next? And let's all hear about your next one because I know everyone wants to hear about that. Um, when we did the uh, Pyramid Texts, we, we had no clue what it was going to do. I mean, in terms of afterwards, it was kind of like um, at, at that point, at that sort of level, we thought, what um, what could we do to uh, help us as uh, help us make a calling card for for us as a, as as directors um, to go to actors to you know so so that that's as far as we were thinking. Let's, I mean, the script was so unconventional that we just thought it's that's a challenge in itself. So when we when we um, finished it. Uh, it was getting some good reception and we sent it to Edinburgh Film Festival and then uh, it, it, it did quite, it did well there. It won, it won, uh, he won best act. It was nominated for, for best film. And it had some screenings, um, but we, we realized it did a lot more when we were doing our second film. 
And it was when we took uh, the casting director, and this was uh, some good few years after, um, we said, uh, it was just in passing, and we said, you know, we did a film, The Pyramid Text, and it won Edinburgh, you know, do, did, did that help? And he said, uh, he said, pretty much, it, it, I couldn't call an agent if, if you, because you had this film, I could call an agent and say, I've got a script, it's by these two directors and they just won Edinburgh Film Festival last year. And then straight away, that was just an in. And so, mm. you know, sometimes you don't realize what something's gonna do as long as you, if we just, if, if you stick to something you really believe in and that gains its own momentum and uh, it will work in the background. So, so I, I guess by the, um you know, virtue of the small budget, the fact that it became very actively focused and, and you know, the things we've discussed already, the, the circumstances that led to a very, very intense performance from, from, from James. Um, I mean, that's genuinely opened doors for you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I guess, I mean, we can't all necessarily have an actual stature of James Cosmo, um, but what we can have is, you know, you, you can still find fantastic actors that, that you can work with. So that kind of, intensity is something that yes. can be a big positive coming coming out of your your micro budget film there it's a calling card uh, yeah. you know what, whatever you do so no matter who's in it if you write your next script and you can send it to any actor really you can, they'll, they'll straight away look at what you've done and if an actor or an agent likes a script because there's not many good scripts out there actually um that was something else we learned the first thing an actor will ask or the agent is what what have they done there was that great story about david lynch who did the um a razor head I don't know if you've heard this. Um, he did a razor head, and you know, I don't, I don't know who here has seen a razor head. It was everyone, I hope. It's, it's yeah, it's an experience, you know. And and interestingly, um, as a side note, on The Shining, they used that film, for, right? Uh, for uh, like, you know, to create the atmosphere. But um, after he finished that, um, he was making The Elephant Man. And mm. then uh, I don't know if anyone knows the story, but it's a great example of, you know, you'd think that a razor head, it would get you nowhere, but, and it was a crazy film. And he was making The Elephant Man and then Mel Brooks came on, on board. And David Lynch came into the office and uh, every, um, everyone was kind of, you know, milling around and said, oh, by the way, uh, Mel Brooks is in, 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 came in and is now producing at, uh, the movie. And David Lynch asked where he was and he just said, he's watching the, a razor head and uh, you know because you're di you, you're on board to directing you want to know who's directing and david lynch apparently just said all right see you guys later he packed his bags i said <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm off this film and uh, apparently uh, mel brooks came out and and said where's david lynch and he said i'm over here and he, he hugged him and he just said you're a madman he said no no one no one touch him like he's got to make this film so that's another thing about um the industry is that you have to find producers to like good producers who who believe in what you're doing and they'll take care of the stuff that that really you can just concentrate on your craft and your act you know your directing and your story so that was a yeah it's just a I it's a story. it's a fantastic anecdote because i don't think you could find a triangle more diverse of filmmakers stylistically than you know if you think about a razor head versus you know the fairly naturalistic elephant man versus Blazing Saddles, the producers. He was he was offered uh, David Lynch after that. I think after the Elephant Man was offered uh, um, either Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi. Right. I don't know if, and go, yeah, go go on YouTube and listen to that story because he he said no to it and he said to his agent, "I can't do this move. I can't. I can't." Um, and the agent just said, "You don't know how many millions you've just turned down." But you know, it, it, it's testament to him that he stuck to his art and uh, and and. Uh, and just as a final thing, what's interesting is that sci-fi particularly, which we found out, a lot of, uh, especially in America, if you've done a really, really intense, independent, weird like film like a Razorhead, for some reason, um, producers in, in America find that, re find that that will be a really good fit for sci-fi. I, I don't know why, that's something we've asked. And I think maybe because sci-fi is a human study and, and I think they look at art directors yeah. to, Kind yeah. of break into sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at the most recent tune. But th that's another conversation yeah. another time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, like Bart Simpson in the classroom, say the phrase, say the phrase, go on, who did you end up casting in your next film? Off the, off the back of your micro-budget work. Um, it went to uh, Orlando Bloom, uh, Anne Reed, and Janet Montgomery, and uh, uh, um, Charlie Creed Miles. Charlie Creed Miles? Yes. Fantastic. So, and, and that was, I'm going to guess, a consequence of the great work you did with James. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That got cast because it went round the, um, it went, it went around uh, agents and and. But again, it was testament to the script as well. Like I was saying, there's not yep. many good scripts, so uh, it was an, yeah, that was a journey in itself. How, how other actors got attached to it and they they, they kind of came off and they couldn't do it, but it was a, uh, and then it led to Orlando Bloom. Fantastic, um, John. You're you're at a different stage because you're still in post. What what's what's your plan next? Where are you going to take to nowhere? Um, I mean, yeah, because I guess it's been such a long and complex journey with post-production. Um, I'm just, I'm so excited to get to know where out to an audience of, you know, kind of indie, micro-budget, queer film lovers. Um, and I think, I think, you know, we've thought about it quite a lot over the last few months. And I think we're gonna go down a self-distribution path and I'm sure I'd have a lot to talk to you guys about afterwards, <laughs> which would be really interesting. Um, but, you know, I think just sort of targeting our audience online, may, you know, maybe a, a small cinematic release would obviously be amazing, um, but we'll have to see about that. But I think at this point, you know, there, it's it's not a super commercial film. It does have a niche audience. And I think, you know, after that, we've got another project in development and that's it, you know, to nowhere's very much a springboard for that. Um, so I'm really looking forward to when that's final. Yeah, I actually, I actually think that was probably some quite good direction from Paul there about, you know, how you might be able to leverage the back of it. And, you know, while we're on the subject of Sales distribution. We're going to move to Marcus. Maybe he will lend you his friendly priest to bless it. Bless your print. Um, I don't. I don't have stars for the wife and her house husband. With Papadopoulos and Sons, Stephen Delane. I had a brilliant French Greek actor called Georges Corofas, who's well known in France and Greece. And there was Georgia Groom and really and Frank Delane Stevenson. So there was enough names in there to like get people interested. I've made the wife and a house husband with complete unknowns. And, but in, in Laura, there's an actor here, not trained, who, and she's embarrassed by that. And she came to acting very late in her life. She was like in her late 30s, early 40s. She's astonishing. And uh, I'm, I'm, I used to work with her in my improv group. My, I used to run a Zoom improv group during lockdown. And she's extraordinary. And, and Lawrence is, is one of those day players, never a lead. And I just thought the film suited these two. And um, so I have a challenge. How do I get a micro budget movie with no names noticed? Like that, that's the ultimate indie film challenge. So, and I couldn't get into Venice and I couldn't get into Sundance and I couldn't get into Berlin. And these are the game-changing festivals. Toronto's a game-changer. There's four or five festivals that will change your life. And these are them. And if you can get into them, you're set. Because you'll just have an army of buyers knocking on your door. Because rarely does a British film get into Cannes. Very rarely does it get into Sundance, right? Because you're competing. Well, at Sundance, it's 80 features from 12,000 submissions, right? The odds are against you. So I was like, what do I do? I need to do something. I am doing festivals. I got into a small New York indie film festival, which in October, next week, I'm flying out next week, called the Chelsea Film Festival in New York. It's lovely, it's indie, it's small, it's very cool. And then I'm doing the British Urban Film Festival. Uh, so I've got a few festivals lined up, but they're not game changers. They're not the festivals where buyers will come. Buyers will only go to four or five of these festivals. Um, the rest, they're just really good for building audience. So my challenge is, what do I do with this film? What do I do with it? So I, I thought, okay, I've got a tax credit coming to me. My tax credit on two, my tax credit was against about two forty, because that's what I actually spent. I set, uh, actually it was two sixty. So I've got a tax credit of about fifty coming back. I've saved about twenty. I've got a seventy thousand pounds. What do I do? I can, I, I can finally take my wife on a dream holiday and give her the kitchen yeah. she's been <laughs> dreaming of. 
or I could self-distribute my next movie. It's a long-running joke with my wife. We're, we're going to cut to a reaction shot of Mrs. Marku. <laughs> okay. Like thunder. So this is what I'm doing. I, I, I spoke to Martin Myers. Martin Myers is a cinema booker. He's your first port of call when you're self-distributing. He's a, an absolute indie legend, fourth generation like film, uh, movie business, nicest guy you'll ever meet, never signs a contract. His word is his bond, old school, love him. And he worked with me on Papadopoulos and Sons. He's the guy that said 500. Now, he, I said to him, I want to do something crazy. And he said, what do you want to do, Marcus? I said, I want to do cinema for a pound. He said, what? I said, I want to offer tickets for a pound. And I want to do it as a double bill with my very successful short film, Two Strangers Who Meet Five Times, which is approaching three million views on YouTube now. It's gone crazy. All the schools play it around the world. It's been translated by fans. It's got 10,000 comments. It's still going crazy. And I shot that about five years ago, two-day shoot. Uh, it did loads of festivals, won loads of awards, all of that. But it went crazy on YouTube. So I thought, if I do that as as a double bill so you you pay a pound you see two strangers to meet five times then you see the wife and a house husband how do i do that he says you've got to four wall it okay four walling is when you buy the screen i said okay i can't afford the daily rate can we get a discount on a week two weeks three weeks yes we can now nobody wants to even four wall it this plan of mine they're like is it porn that was the first question that like <laughs> came back to me from the prince charles cinema it's like there's no porn in it it's like because it hasn't been to any festivals yet hasn't been reviewed. It's a complete un unknown entity. How the hell do I get that into cinemas? So I met Greg at the Prince Charles. He's a very nice guy. And I convinced him. I said, this has to happen, right? For indie film, for the whole future of indie film. I know what you say, like a small screen, but you can think bigger, actually because you are in the best position to bring an audience to a screen. And we do it in theater, right? I used to sell when I was at Edinburgh Festival as an actor, as a university kid, we'd be selling out on, on Prince's Street because I'd be standing with a bot, you know, like a, like a bollard on my head, handing out tickets to American tourists. And we'd fill those shows. You can fill the cinemas like you can fill theatre. So the plan is cinema for a pound, three weeks. I've got that booked with the Prince Charles Cinema. I've now convinced the Mockingbird in Birmingham to give me a week after that and i'm now convincing a screen in bristol to do the same thing and i'm going to tour it and i'm going to introduce every screening and i'm going to fly the hell out of people i'm going to vox box people and i'm going to use social media and this was the conversation i was having with you earlier which is and it was uh, it was another gentleman at the back there that i was having a conversation with who said they had very strong online but nothing and good physical with dvd but nothing theatrical now my passion is is taking we all look at theatrical and we think oh that's just for the big blockbusters and we're too small actually the big blockbusters you can compete with the blockbusters i did that with papadopoulos and sons and the reason why you can compete is that they need to make money at the box office and what you need to do is find audience and they're totally different things the 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 the, the 100 million dollar 200 million dollar movie needs a successful opening weekend and a box office because that's how they make most of their money. But you, as an independent filmmaker, you look at how My Big Fat Greek Wedding started in three cinemas in New York and ended up conquering the world against all expectations. There are many, many stories. Um, even look at something like Silver Linings Playbook, which was, which was staged, released over... And I know it's a Hollywood movie with big indie stars. I get that. But, the, but we're not looking to generate three, four hundred million dollars at the, at the box office. What we're looking to do is capture people's imagination and in, invite audiences and get the critics behind us. And you can do that with a theatrical release. And that's my plan now. I'm swapping Greeks for a huge discount. Brilliant. Fantastic, and and you know you can follow. Well, hopefully next sign up everybody next March. You'll all come and just pay a pound. And if you bring four of your friends, it's just going to cost you five pounds. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to bring the entire Greenlit team. That'll be their Christmas treat in March. So, um, well, we, I mean, we, we are rabbiting on, but I'm going to ask you to be nice and succinct now. I'm going to ask each member of the panel two two sentences, three sentences, maybe tops. What advice would you give to anybody in this room 
who wants to get up and, and just wants to do it and wants to make their film for whatever they've got in their back pocket. Little bit of advice for micro-budget filmmakers. Paul, hit me. Go with your heart and just make something you love. Fantastic. Sean. I would say if you are planning to make a, a micro-budget feature film, really ask yourself if that's what you really, really want. <laughs> because it'll take a very long time. It'll be absolutely, you know, emotionally challenging. There'll be ups and downs. Motivation will come and go. So I think the first thing is to make sure you really want to do it. And, it, it you know, you don't need to answer why, because I think that's an impossible question to answer. But as long as you know, for whatever reason, that you want to do it, then I think you will do it somehow. Yeah. Fantastic. That gets a round of applause. <laughs> three sentences, Marcus, not 33, three. Honestly, what they just said, 100%. It's like, go with your heart, 100%. Tell the story that you burn to tell because that's what will get you through the challenges and difficulties and the knockbacks. And what you were talking about, you've got to really want to do it. In other words, if you go with your heart, you will overcome the obstacles. Fantastic. That was Big Vision, Small Budget. Links to all the featured filmmakers are in the show notes. If you'd like to find out more about Greenlit, our services to creatives or our upcoming events, please visit greenlit.com or follow our socials. I'm Pete Storey and thanks for listening.